Today we're starting a, a series uh, uh, on, for Advent. So we're just calling it our Advent series. We're starting now, and we're going to continue on to our, till our Christmas program. Not our Christmas program, but our Christmas uh, worship service on the 20th of December. Um, my observation is it seems like in our culture this year that people are fairly anxious for Christmas to come. Uh, my, if, if, if putting up Christmas lights is any indication uh, of what's taking place. Everyone's putting up their Christmas lights like the day after Halloween. And it was just, you know, November 1, putting up Christmas lights. And I, so I had to keep up with the Joneses. I, for the first time in the history of my marriage, I, I have all my Christmas lights up before Thanksgiving. It was kind of a wonderful feeling. I was looking at Saturday, some of my neighbors putting their Christmas lights. I just had thoughts of you suckers. And, uh, <laughs> You know, I know what you're going through, and you're prevailing. You know, I got mine up. But uh, I, I think what's happening is people are looking for some good news. They're looking for goodwill, and they're looking for some love and some peace. And, and in their own way, they're, they're trying to find, they're trying to find um, something positive to reach onto, and they're, and they're going for it. And uh, it was a blessing to my grandchildren. I took them walking on Thanksgiving night into a, one of the new developments near our house, and this is one of the Griswold houses, you know, that, you know, they spent, I don't know how much money they spent on Christmas lights, but they should get a community award. They got everything they could ever be bought at a store on a Christmas yard or house decoration. And, but they were all, all the lights were off. It was 8.30 at night. I think they went to bed. But my five-year-old grandson from Los Angeles, Maverick, his name's Maverick, that's right. And uh, Maverick went up and knocked on their door got the lady up and uh, asked if she could turn the lights on, and she did. So, kind of an interesting time. <laughs> I think people are looking for something positive. I think there's something naturally inside of us, uh, as, we, as we'll talk about today, that draws us to what I'm going to say, the romance of this story of God becoming man. There's just, there's just something within human nature that, that responds to this message. We love him because he first loved us. And it resonates in the heart of people, whether they realize it resonates in their heart or not, but it does. You can sense in the air the fact that God became man and came after us. And we can try to do the political correct thing of all the other religious seasons. I went through PIR. It's one of the other things we did on this. We went to PIR and drove through the Christmas lights. And at the end, they got all the different religions, you know, wishing you Happy New Year, Happy Holidays, and everything else, real politically correct thing. But there's something about the message of Jesus coming to us that can't be matched. We're the only religion in the world where God comes to us. The only one. All other religions, man has to make his way to God through pilgrimages and sacraments and sacred rites and denials and, and everything else. But we're the only religion in the world where God comes to us. And uh, so what we want to do is spend the next four weeks just reflecting on this event and how it impacts our, our daily life. It's a wonderful story, and uh, really, it's really a story that's beyond human comprehension, that God became a man. And uh, it was interesting, uh, Natalie, my daughter, was telling me about a theological conversation that was taking place in her van. She was driving over to my house. My, I have a six-year-old Spitfire granddaughter by the name of Ramona. We call her Roro. And, uh, and Roro has a spirit of faith like no one's business. And she just blurted out 
in the back of the van while they're driving their house. I believe in Jesus Christ, and I believe every word of the Bible. Making her declaration. Well, I have a, a grandson named Wallace. He's more of a, a skeptic and a scientist. He's a kind of a servant when it comes to scientific things at the age of eight. And he says, oh, yeah. Like, those stories are impossible. Like a 12-year-old ki kid killing a giant and a man getting swallowed by a whale. <laughs> and Mort, my son-in-law, the word of wisdom says, well, you're both correct. There's things that are impossible but that doesn't mean they're not true. I remember a man named Jesus saying, with God, all things are what? Possible. And trying to explain the virgin birth is, uh, I mean, you can't really say it. Well, what happened was, you know, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her womb. And that's about as far as you can get, because you really can't explain it past that. Okay, God can take nothing and it can create it into something. Great book to read. It's kind of heavy, it kind of, it's like eating rich chocolate, but it's called, it's called The Credibility of New Testament Miracles by a, a biblical scholar by the name of Craig Keener. And he has actually done studies on tracking healings across the world, miracle testimonies around the world. And uh, he's a Baptist, by the way. And uh, he just refutes all the skepticism of our age. He, he claims he can track 230 million healings. And uh, one of the things he says is that we don't have to substantiate the healings of Jesus medically, because Jesus didn't have x-ray technicians following him around and, and uh, you know, people doing ultrasounds and everything else, to MRIs to substantiate that something happened. Okay, the, the fact is the blind man said, I, I, I could not see, but now I can see. Okay, that's all that matters. If we did a medical exam, what happens if the, 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 the testimony of science says he shouldn't be seen but the fact that he's seen is a miracle. Now, I believe Jesus transformed body functions and stuff, but sometimes that is not the case. I've heard of people with glass eyeballs who can see through them after being prayed for. It's not medically impossible, but yet with God, with all things are possible. I've heard on the mission field where someone can preach, uh, actually in their natural language, or say, I go, to, I go to Afghanistan, I'm speaking in English, okay? But what the people are hearing me are hearing me in another language. You can't explain the miracles of God. Of God became a man conceived in the womb of a virgin. What an what a incredible story. But uh, the most incredible one, part of that, is not just even the conception of a virgin having a baby, but the fact that God came to his creation. And probably the most intense way he could come. He became one of us. Now, my scripture today is really kind of an unusual Christmas scripture. It's not a, it's not a scripture that you would, that you would um, look at when it comes to Christmas story, although in, uh, there's a devotional book that we're actually going to give you, one per household, that we want us all to be reading together, and you're, we're going to have daily uh, devotionals on our devotional starting on Tuesday. It's a book called Come, Let Us Adore Him, and it's a, it's a devotional for the Advent season. With David Paul Tripp, he's a great Bible uh, author and uh, a, a great pastor and a great man of God. And uh, he actually, in one of the devotionals, he uses this section of Scripture as part of a devotional reading. It's out of the book of Revelation. You know, we only look at times the book of Revelation as just being futuristic. It's just, 
just unfolding of bad stuff that's going to happen before Jesus comes. It's kind of a simple statement. That's how people kind of look at it. Verses that the book of Revelation entails the whole comprehensive plan of God. And I want us to look at the book of Revelation in that context when I read this scripture. Revelation chapter chapter 5 and... uh, I think it's verse 11 to, I can get my scriptures here, verse, excuse me, verse 1 through 5. And I want us to, I want us to pay attention to one phrase of why I'm reading this chapter anyway. The one phrase is this, is that no one in heaven and earth was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. That's, that's what, that's, that's what I want us to focus on because that's kind of the heart of what I want to talk to us about today. How many of you would agree that God knows things that you and I don't know? God knows things that man can't figure out. God just knows things more than we are. That's the problem. Me being an expert, by only observing this much, is judging a God who sees everything. And what he wants us to know, he's revealed to us in a book that's called the Bible. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, what was a scroll? And a basic definition was a papyrus, which they used to write on for documents and those things during the first century. Made of papyrus, usually it was written on, on the backside because the lines were horizontal. On this particular description, it's It's a code written on both sides. I don't want to get into the symbolism of that. But I want to talk about the seals is really what I want to talk to you about here. The seals on that particular document meant the information on that document was closed. No one could look into it. No one could understand what was in there because they couldn't break the seals to be able to look into it themselves. as As Revelation 5 says, there was no one who was worthy to do that. Now, seals spoke of authority. The only one who could break those seals to read or make the declaration in that document is someone who was with authority. You can see this engravings of ancient Roman inscriptions where the emperor is sitting on the throne and he's holding scrolls, sometimes with seals on them, because the emperor would be the only one to break open the seals to make the declaration. And the only one worthy to declare his plan is God himself. We can't look into it. We can't, we can't understand it. We, we don't perceive it. But God has a plan. And he's had a plan since the beginning of time. Now here's the truth about God's plan. He had a plan to rescue, to rescue the world that only he could conceive. We can't. We wouldn't be able to do that. And not only would he be the only one to be able to conceive, but he was the only one to be able to bring it to pass. He's the only one that could come up with that plan, and he's the only one that had the ability to bring that plan 
to pass. Man in all his genius couldn't conceive it. Man in all his creative imagination could not create it. In his ability, he could not bring it to pass. Man would not be able to come up with this plan or, or, or implement this particular plan. Because of man's great alienation from God, man can't, couldn't even look into this plan. Now this plan consists of five truths. The first truth is the, plan, is, is the truth of a broken world. Now we're broken. God, who created a wonderful universe and actually created man in his image in a wonderful way, the world, as beautiful as it is, I have a cabin and we enjoy the lake and we enjoy the mountains and we enjoy our view of Mount St. Helens and we, 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 we enjoy all that. You know, it's, it's funny that you find a volcano beautiful <laughs> that can blow up and take lives, but it still has a majestic beauty to it. And we love waterfalls and trail hiking, and we, we, we love, Sue and I love, we love to kayak, we, we love the water, we, we love the beauty of creation, and, but there's just something wrong with creation. It's not acting correctly. I find people very, very interesting, and, and it's wonderful. They're fearfully and wonderfully made. And being an ex-school teacher, it, it really comes to pass. Every time you got a whole new crew of students, that each one, no matter where they're at in life, you can see this wonderful potential of what God created intellectually and creatively and, and their talents and, and, and the way that they express themselves. It's, it's, it's unbelievable that each young student has such great potential. You can see them made in the image of God. I think all the teachers would recognize that. There's, and there's a challenge there as a teacher to bring all that's within them out. Whether they know Jesus or not, it's the start. It's important. But we're broken. We're broken spiritually. We're without God. We... we we make up a lot of random, senseless statements that we call religion, but they really are horribly complex at times, and they're horribly stupid. I remember trying to resist Jesus in, in college in my junior year, and I started studying world religions, religions like Baha'i. I remember going home on Christmas break and grabbing Sue and taking her to the gardens of self-realization as we had our hands cupped, and we're going om peace and bowing down. We're up in Malibu Beach, and come on, Sue, this is cool. Just kind of cup your hands like this and bow down. This is kind of cool hippie spirituality. And I remember reading books, and nothing made sense to me. I mean, I didn't even understand. This does not make any sense what they're trying to say. I was just in a forum here in August where I represented uh, Christianity's worldview on a number of subjects, and the other people on the board or the panel, I should say, well, one was a, a, a rabbi, and the other was a, um, a pagan priest. <clears throat> kind of wonderful. And coming up with, you know, we're dealing with what is love and what is justice and all these basic core human questions. And uh, I remember the, the, the pagan priest sharing, and, and it just brought back immediately, 40-some years ago, those books I was reading. Just, man, A is going to Z to M, back to H, and this is making no sense at all. It's inconsistent with logic. I mean, I understand you. I don't even know. I couldn't repeat what you just said to me. I was just, that's how complex. But she's tapped into some secret in the universe. We're a mess spiritually. We're a mess relationally. We use each other. We're hostile to each other. We're we manipulate, we ostracize, we betray, we walk out, we avoid. 
We do not live for others, and we resent deeply things. I mean, one of the first stories of the Bible, as we well know, is the sin of Cain. Murder his brother. Over what? Over jealousy. Jealousy. He killed his brother because his brother's sacrifice was accepted by God, and he was rebuked for coming with a half-hearted presentation. So instead of looking at himself, man, I need to up my game, he decided to take his brother out. And we've been doing the same since the beginning of time. We're a mess, broken relationally. We're broken morally. Really, man's about pursuing self. The core of all moral and immoral choices are, am I going to live for others or am I going to live for self? You say, well, in the last days, men will be lovers of themselves. They've been lovers of themselves since Adam fell. They're just on steroids in the last days in their pursuit of self. It's getting worse and worse and worse and worse, but it's not that it was never just, it wasn't always there, it was always there. We seek pleasure and image and beauty and power. We can go on to these things that we pursue at the cost of other people. We're broken socially. We're angry. We're distrusting. We have forgotten to love. We're, we're a broken society. We're broken not only just in our country, we're, but we're, we're broken and socially around the world. And then, and as the truth, this great plan of a twisted image. Man was made in the image of God, as we've talked about here. And so therefore, every man and every woman is created with wisdom, created with creativity, created with logic, and given with those tools, given a mandate to take dominion. There's something in us that wants to rule the universe and rule the earth and rule our stewardship and discover secrets and we invent things. And it's amazing how much we've advanced in just the last 20 years and even the last 100 years. If you take all of human history and just the, the acceleration of discovery, it's just it's off the chart. It's off the chart what we've discovered and, and uh, how we've grown. I mean, we, we've got air travel, and we got internet, and we got Zoom meetings, we got smartphones. How many boomers remember the old days when you were watching cartoons in the early 60s? You're watching the Jetsons and watching each other on a TV screen. That's called FaceTime, Skype. And I remember that, I remember thinking of like a seven-year-old kid, that'll never happen. I was telling the first service, you should go on YouTube just to listen to talk shows like in the late 90s as they're discussing things like uh, the internet, emails, and those concepts. And they're, la they're actually, these are like, you know, all the famous you know, talk show hosts at that time, they're, they're actually like laughing at, at the concept of, being, of an email. <laughs> How silly is that? You know, just, you know. And just the last 20 years, the advancement that we have in technology and how it's changed the world. I, I talk with leaders around the world weekly, face-to-face -face on my iPad. Just amazing. I was with Peru here about a week ago, uh, Argentina this last week. Uh, you know, I talk with the provost every month uh, in Thailand. You know, face, I, I, I FaceTime Alessandro and Marcia. I won't mention, you know, the specific country they're in as we're recording the service, but we, we, can get on, we can get on Skype and FaceTime and have conversations and make quick decisions. I mean, they use the term a global village, but there's something really true about that. The, the world has become 
Very, very, very small. It's unbelievable. I got a phone call in the office here last week, and uh, was my home on, on, my, on my phone screen. So, oh, Sue's calling me. And I, I answered, hello, and uh, no sound. And all of a sudden, the voice of my grandson came on my phone. This is Scout Mortimer. Oh, hello, Scout, on my home phone. He said, you guys still have a landline? We do. We use it kind of one of those sticky things that attracts flies. Okay, so all the telemarketers will call our landline and leave our cell phones alone. That's why I have it. But he called me. He called me, and he goes, where's Grandma? Well, I don't know. I'm at work, Scout. I'm working right now. Well, I know where she's at. I got her iPad. She's at Walmart. <laughs> I've been tracking her. I'm thinking, this is creepy. This is creepy. My grandchildren are tracking their grandmother. You know, in all this, though, in, in all this, and, and even in our intentions to actually become, because we're made in the image of God, to do some philanthropic thing of loving people and, you know, giving ourselves to charity, because we're made in the image of God. We have a conscience. Whether we, whether we align ourselves up with that conscience or not, we, there's something within us that wants to try to do good to people. In all this, we really become hypocritical moralists because there's something twisted in us. There's a dark side to these things. The Bible calls these deeds dead works. And they mean nothing to God because while we're trying to do these good things, we're actually resisting him at the same time. I was doing some studies on culture and the times that Jesus lived in and just some of the things that he would be facing as far as the culture, what it would be like to be a Jew living in the early part of the first century and what that would be like, you know, with all that was going on. And, and I came across a, a, an interview on NPR, of all places, of a historian and a theologian out of New York City. And uh, he was a Catholic, but they were asking him a lot of questions about Christmas and and you know, just spirituality in kind of an intellectual way, and I thought it was interesting. And he tells the story of an archaeologist by the name of Lee Levine who actually went to Jerusalem with his archaeology pursuit to really find truth. Now, I think all of us, have, and some of you would be here, I've not, never been to Jerusalem or Israel myself. It's one of those things on the bucket list that we got to go to. But it's always interesting to me that people, when they, people come back, they're just... It's like they went to the third heaven, you know, like, you know, I, I saw this, and I saw the Sea of Galilee, and I saw this, and I, this, and I just felt his presence, you know, tied to that. I'm not here to challenge any of that or speak lightly of that, but, but what, what Lee Levine said was kind of interesting. He said this, I think most Jews who have never been to Israel, talking about Jewish people and trying to find their spirituality, going back to the homeland, he says that, that they come here, and they see that with all the achievements of Israel, and it's been pretty miraculous what Israel's achieved, there's still a problem with driving. There's a problem of politeness, of getting on a bus and waiting your turn. That is, when you come, things are still messy. And so, you know, with all the spirituality, and I went to the you know, <clears throat> to the Mount of Olives, and I, and I went here, and I walked, the, I walked the path that Jesus walked, and all that. People are still angry, hostile, selfish, impatient, rude. I can go on and on and on and on because they haven't been fixed yet. There's something 
broken in us. The Christmas story really is about our twistedness and our brokenness. That's part of the reality of why he had to come. And also a life of suffering is the third truth out of the five. Because the world's broken and the image of God is twisted, we experience experience a thing called suffering. We're victims of this brokenness. We're, We're victims of this twistedness. What we need to realize as Pentecostals, we like to say, well, the devil attacked me. But really, in essence, to the most part, we suffer in life because of the sins of other people. When someone commits a theft, someone suffers that particular action. How many people here have ever had any of your property stolen before? It has, a, it has such a defiling effect on you. When someone obviously is murdered, it's a horrible scenario. Someone's physically attacked and assaulted, it's a horrible, horrible traumatic experience. I remember facing a, a burglar scanning my house at 6 a.m. on a November morning one time and, you know, confronting him. And, you know, I slept for the next six months with one eye open, ready to jump. My adrenaline was up. I had a little bit of that PTSD thing ready, ready to fight at any moment. It has effects upon us, the, the actions of other people. Corporate crime affects us. Injustice affects us. Adultery affects us. But they all come through people, even disasters. And I've said this before when we were doing video services. We always call disasters acts of God. Well, maybe had we done better engineering, it wouldn't have been an act of God. It would have just been a storm and people's lives would have been saved. How many shortcuts have we taken in building? And how many warnings have we not heeded? How many preventions could we have had? And sometimes systems and injustices and wrong leadership and ethical decisions to make a buck at the cost of other people have cost people's lives. We suffer because the brokenness and the twistedness of man. And here's another reality, is that we and our decisions have affected other people. Talking to leaders, sometimes I let them know that no one wants to be labeled a Saul, but in our weakness sometimes, we've all, and maybe in one arena or some situation, have played a Saul to a David without even realizing we were doing that. Hard for us to fathom that some people have had to really work hard in loving us as leaders. Working through forgiveness, working through issues where maybe we have, we have hurt them. This thing called suffering is real. But the fourth truth is this. this the truth involves a loving God. You know, God's solution to this whole mess called the world was himself. That scroll has the plan that God has come up with that involves himself completely in being the answer to man's needs. Yes, he entered the world to satisfy the justice of dying in my place and your place for our sins, to remove the guilt of sin from us, to remove the power of sin from us, But he also became one of us to take on our suffering as his own human experience. Remember, Jesus in his session right now is our high priest. I know as Protestants, you may not appreciate that concept. Growing up Catholic, there's a concept that where someone between me and God was called the priest. Now, that was kind of a man-made religion. But we have a priest in heaven 
that we go to, that we go through. The Bible says he can be touched with every feeling of our weaknesses just as, because he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He can feel us. He can be impacted by us. He is moved by us. So he can come and he can strengthen us. Jesus was conceived in controversy. I mean, his, his mother was not yet completely officially married to Joseph. You know, later on in John, when the, when the Sanhedrin were coming against him, it says, we are not born of fornication. Very likely, they were, Jesus had a reputation. His mother had him as an illegitimate child. That could be a possibility. He was conceived in a weird situation that he, he went through in controversy. He, he was the target of a murder scheme. He was part of a peasant class. A carpenter wasn't middle class. A carpenter would be the top of the line of the peasant class. Jesus grew up as a peasant. Study it out. Carpenters weren't well-paid people. Why do you think Jesus had such compassion upon multitudes when he fed them? Yes, he was divine. Yes, he had the heart of God. But as a, as a man... He knew scarcity. He tasted it. You know, when he said, you know, if they ask you to walk a mile, go a second mile, it could be that Jesus himself suffered that injustice and knew what it was for some Roman to throw all his gear on him. I want you to carry this for me. He may have known firsthand of what that might have been like. Can, you really, can we really picture Jesus with some arrogant Roman soldier just prodding him, you carry this for me, and Jesus knowing that he could call a legion of angels down. He carries that pack, and he says, you know what, I'm going to go even an extra mile. Come on, I'm going to carry it for you further. Now, can you prove that, Bob? No, I can't prove that. But I think the probability is there that Jesus told stories sometimes out of his own life experience of the things he suffered becoming one of us. He tasted what we taste, that he give us an example of what it is to be obedient to God regardless of those things. He tasted those things so he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins because he didn't sin in the midst of that suffering. He tasted those things so he could be a compassionate high priest, so he could strengthen us in our weaknesses. The bottom line truth is that God came to us. Last thing that involves is a divine imagination. Skyler, why don't you bring your worship team up here? As David Paul Tripp quotes in a devotional book, Oh, Come, Let Us Adore Him, he makes this statement. But in one of the gorgeous mysteries of God's sovereign grace, he looked on his broken, rebellious world with eyes of mercy. He didn't have to. He did not have to look upon our human race with eyes of mercy. He had another alternative. That was to annihilate us. But he chose with eyes of mercy to redeem. John says, John 3, verse 17, we always love verse 16. We know that, wow, Billy Graham quotes it continually in, in all the sermons he had preached. But Jesus says, for, the, for God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. While we're yet sinners, Paul said, Romans 5 8, Christ died for us. Come on, he did not condemn the world, but he came to rescue it, to rescue it from the guilt and power of sin, 
course, he did this through the cross and paying the penalty for that. And now by the presence of the Holy Spirit delivering us from the effects of sin. He destroyed these things. He came to rescue us in his life, his ministry, his resurrection, the cross, and even in his reign today, he is still moving and bringing to pass his plan. He came to destroy evil, to confront Satan, heal disease, set captives free, and go after rebels who were hiding. And all the ex-rebels would say amen to that. When God's a hound dog, he hunts you down. He's a, he's a hunting dog. He gets you out of the bushes. He wants you. He will not relent. He will not give up. He'll open the eyes of the atheist who doesn't want anything to do with him. I love Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, when Jesus is in the synagogue at Nazareth, and he, he reads out of the scroll of Isaiah, which you know today is Isaiah 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, good news to the poor. The gospel is not advice. It's a proclamation of an event that took place and the intention of God to rescue you and me. And just to, just to meditate for the next month, that God had an agenda to rescue me. Not just here, you can quote it in a theology class, but in a relationship that he came after me. I remember talking to a bunch of interns about this concept. We had an intern who was an Iraqi veteran in the Iraqi war. His friend had committed suicide and and he himself was, just, was psychologically just really messed up. He gave his life to Jesus. He's, he's a solid member of uh, New Vintage Church in Tri-Cities today. After hearing that, he just said, you know, that makes me feel so special to hear that. Well, we should. We should feel intensely loved that God would go to such great extent to rescue you and me. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, Recovery of sight to the blind. Set at liberty those who are oppressed to reclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That, that kind of tells me this, that God wants to do some good things for you and for me and for the people in our community. Now, I don't know who puts up these signs or what agency it is, but there are signs around Vancouver you see sometimes like, we care, you're noticed, you're important. I appreciate that. I appreciate the heart of that. We probably need to do that as a church. Our kids have done that. Our youth group sat out there here this summer on right out here on 78th, all sorts of signs and just pointing people driving by. You matter. But you matter. God loves you. God's got a plan for you. When people feel lost and alone and alienated. There was a church that was trying to just do something, and they went out on a Saturday knocking on doors and just wanting to know people if they could pray for them. They're knocking on this door in this one house and no answer, but they heard from way in the back, and the person said, Hey! Hey, can you hear me? Help! And uh, they, they kind of opened the door gingerly, and this guy's screaming, at, Please, come in, help! And they went to the back, and he says, I've been laying here for days, injured, but no one came. And you've come. Thank you. I like uh, Lauren Daigle's song, where 
I'm going to send out an army. I'm going to send out an army to rescue. I know where you are, and I'm sending my army to you. Come on. If God is anything, he is a rescuer. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's not going to give up. He's not going to relent. He's not going to give you over. Come on, he's got dogged determination. I have a friend of mine who answers all my emails with these three words, in his grip. You're in his grip. Now, I think you can kick and bite your way out of it, yeah. But, he's, but he does have you in his grip. And you need to rest in the reality of why he has you in that grip, because he loves you. Story of Christmas witnesses to the instincts of the human soul. We instinctively know that we don't know. Paul pointed out on Mars Hill, he says, you know, you guys, in all your statues and all your idols, you got one over here I noticed called the one to the unknown God. This one, I'm going to reveal to you. What were they saying? They're saying, you know what? We may not know everything. There's things that we do not know, and we're admitting it. Paul capitalized on that. Come on, this, the instincts of the human soul, witnesses to this story is that we need forgiveness. We try to create works or man-made religion to make up for these things, but man, we need to be forgiven. There's nothing like the message of the gospel. You are forgiven. We're helpless. I don't know how many atheists have come to the end of themselves, but they can't solve a problem that's led them to faith. We're helpless. And God comes to be the answer for our life. Let's stand to our feet. And let's just... Appreciate Jesus as we go into worship. That he loves us. Came up with a plan that we couldn't come up with ourselves. He came to us to rescue us. We didn't come to him. We were blind. He opened our eyes. We were hard-hardened. He softened our hearts. Come on, he is not going to now give up on us. We thank you, Lord. Let this turn into worship today, Jesus, in the deepest way. Amen. You came to save Lord. You came to save